This podcast was brought to you by the Australian College of Environmental Studies, aces.edu.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today from Melbourne is Nicole Bilsma, a woman of passion and her passion lies in environmental medicine. As a result of her own infertility issues, that's 10 miscarriages, my God, and noticing a strong connection between many of her patients' illnesses and their home, Nicole established the building biology industry in Australia and in 1999 founded the Australian College of Environmental Studies to educate people about the health hazards in the built environment. Nicole is an accomplished naturopath and acupuncturist of over 15 years and has trained over 2,000 naturopaths at various institutions. You are regularly consulted by the media to discuss electromagnetic fields, mould, toxic chemicals. Nicole, you also lecture extensively throughout Australia and abroad, educating integrative GPs and about environmental health issues. So Nicole has got three young children and is currently doing her PhD on environmental chemical assessment. Nicole has also just finished the chapter of a textbook, Advanced Clinical Naturopathic Medicine, in its third edition, the chapter on environmental medicine. You are a busy lady, Nicole. Welcome to FX Medicine. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me back. Our pleasure. Now, today we're going to be talking about the allergy epidemic. So I think the first question is, why? What's happening with allergy? That's a great question. I mean, you know, when I grew up in the 1970s, peanut-free schools were unheard of. Yes. Now, every parent is briefed about food allergens before their child goes to school because there will be children who will have a serious anaphylactic response to peanuts and other types of food allergies. So the past three decades, we've seen a dramatic increase in the prevalence of allergic diseases like asthma, atopic eczema, hay fever and food allergies in Western populations with marked differences in prevalence observed in populations despite similar genetic backgrounds, suggesting that the environment is primarily involved. Now, if you look at the stats, we know about 241 million people suffer from asthma worldwide, nearly 1,000 people worldwide die from it. We know eczema affects up to 20% of children, and Australia is leading the allergy epidemics because 25% of our population will be diagnosed with an allergy at some point in their life. Mm. We know 20% of adults will have hay fever, 10% will have asthma, and 25% of children will have asthma, and 10% will have food allergies and eczema. So it's enormous. So we're leading on there, obviously, from the propensity to allergy, and that is atopy. Why are we becoming more atopic? Well, the increase in allergies since the 90s has coincided with an increase in childhood food allergies to uh, cow's milk, eggs, nuts and wheat. And we're starting to suspect that the, it's a mixture of different things like an increase in caesarean births, which means that children's gut microbiome is skewed towards looking more like the skin from the mother rather than what comes through the vagina. We know breastfeeding is really important as a prebiotic um, for these gut microbiome for the infant. 
Um, we know that the use of chemical cleaners, which is far more common in Western countries, is affecting the bacterial diversity within the home. And in fact, there was a really important study published last year uh, looking at the why the Amish children have very low rates of asthma and allergies yeah. compared to the Hutterites, which have an identical lifestyle to the Amish. And the two di- the differences between the two communities is that one has industrialised farming techniques. The Hutterites use pesticides in uh, their farming. They don't have cars and other things like that. Um, and the diversity of bacteria and the endotoxins in their homes is significantly less in the Hutterites who have higher levels of asthma and allergies. So what they're starting to look at is the whole area of the home microbiome and its influence on allergies. And what we're seeing is that the more diverse the bacteria in the household dust and the more endotoxins these bacteria create, the lower the risk of asthma and allergies, especially in the first year of life. Now, other things that affect it are things like having pets. If you have a pet while you're pregnant and in the first year of that child's life, the incidence of allergies and asthma is lower because the pet has its own microbiome, which it's shedding when it's in the home. Now, we know humans are one of the major sources of this bacterial diversity in the home. We shed between 14 and 37 million bacterial genome copies every single hour Mm. into the air. So this explains why people who have large families um, and older siblings, that the children are born into these families, have a significantly lower risk of asthma and allergies. So, I mean, this I wrote a, a, a story, if you like, a page, and it was something I read. I think it was either The Scientist or Scientific American about microbial clouds. And the story was basically slanted towards a potential use for even forensics, but but the big message was that we are shedding these bacteria into the air and sharing them. So if we're doing that, to me, it must obviously have something to do with the microbes from soil and animals, because people in urban environments you'd expect would have less allergies if they're sharing all of these bacteria amongst themselves to dampen an atopic preponderance to allergy. So to dampen the atopy down a little bit. Is that would that be correct? Or like, is it really this hygiene hypothesis that the what what do you call it the old friends hypothesis, where it's these bugs that live in the soil and on the animals and in the farm that we need to be exposed to that we're just not getting exposed to nowadays. This this is what it's leaning towards. So in 1989, David Strawn uh, proposed the hygiene hypothesis, which suggested that the lack of infections early on in childhood predisposed children to allergies later in life. Now, we know the reduction in infections is attributed to improvements in public hygiene like chlorinated drinking water, which is interesting because, of course, chlorination kills bacteria. And what does it do when you drink it? Mm. Well, well, you know, this could be part of it. I don't know. There's There's no research that I can see on this. And we know better sewage management, et cetera. But the use of antibacterial chemicals in the home, Uh, what a disaster. It's like antibiotics. Yeah. So we know the immune system, which wants to be busy all the time, turns its attention to otherwise harmless antigens because it's just not being challenged. Now, whilst the validity of the hygiene hypothesis is still being debated among scientists, it's interesting to note that the progressive shift to a Western lifestyle in the Middle Eastern countries and Asia also correlates to an increase in the prevalence of allergic diseases. 
The next hypothesis that has emerged in 2005 by Nova and Huffnagel has recently emerged to explain the role of the gut microbiome in the prevention of allergic disease because we know the gut microbiome is important to program immune responses early in life. So we know these digestive bacteria have a really important role and that emerging evidence suggests a really strong correlation between the composition and function of the gut microbiome and the incidence of allergies and asthma um, as reduced diversity in the gut microbiome of infants is associated with an increased risk of allergies. Nicole, can I just go back to the hygiene hypothesis? I understand there's still debate. Um, you know, it was basically, it was this holy grail. You know, we finally understand why it's happening. And, uh, and there was the work of, I can't remember his first name, but Dunstan at, I think it was Sydney Uni, 2000 and was it six? Was it 2003? Where he teased apart the TH1, TH2 thing. And we thought that was it. It's nice and simple. It's a swing. Uh, forgive me, it's a seesaw. One's up, the other one's down. So there you go. It's all done and dusted. But it wasn't long after that that a new machine that goes bing came av- became available where they could tease out a lot more of these TH, um, sorry, um, these um, cytokine influences on T helper cells. And what they found is that it's not a seesaw. It's swings and roundabouts and certain merry-go-rounds. The, there's comorbidity. One, there's cycling, quick cycling between the two. So that's where this sort of old friends theory became a more acceptable thing. But what I saw in some studies is that they were debating whether farming practices did have an effect on reducing allergies and atopy. I wonder whether they didn't look at the use of pesticides and things that were knocking out the bugs. This is really interesting because if you look at the rise in allergies, it correlates with the changes in farming practices in the 50s and 60s because most pesticides are antibacterials. Many of these pesticides are used as preservatives in personal care products, some in food. So, you know, I really suspect this is playing a huge role in the potential development of allergies later on in life. Now, we know the Western diet, of course, is also implicated because high omega-6 oils, saturated fats, sugar starches, low fiber. Fiber is critical because this is what the microbiome in the gut relies on in order to create these short-chain fatty acids. So it's really important that um, that the diet plays a, a very important role. Of course, we know probiotics and prebiotics and pickled and fermented foods and indigestible plant-based fibres are really important. Um, And this is certainly why we can't just look at the external environment. We have to look at the diet as well. Another interesting thing that I find is that when you cook food in a microwave oven, it kills microbes because microwave oven sterilises food. So, you know, if you look at the introduction of the microwave oven, what impact does it have when you... Um, microwave the food and kill off all the bacteria in the food because an important Japanese study was published a couple of years ago that showed that bacteria naturally found on the seaweed or nori transfer their genes to an individual's gut bacteria so they can produce enzymes to release beneficial nutrients. So the bacteria in the food help confer these genes to help our gut bacteria digest food. When you microwave food and if you give microwave bottled milk to an infant whose sole form of nutrition in the first six months is bottled infant formula 
or nuked breast milk, I mean, what impact does that have on the gut microbiome? So, so is that any different, though, from oven cooking of food? That's very different. Really? Very different, yes, absolutely. Oh. Very different. So I didn't microwave know. cooking uses microwave or radio frequencies. Yeah. Um, and they're very different because it heats moisture or the water molecules within the food. So so has that been demonstrated with regards to bacterial content of food with microwave heating versus oven cooking? I haven't seen any research on this, but what I do think is interesting is that, you know, when you want to sterilise anything, you put it in the microwave oven because it kills life. I mean, we use microwaves in mm. labs and mm. things like that to do that. So I That's think really it's a really important issue that needs uh, more research. You know what? I'm also interested in, you know, you mentioned enzymes and, you know, when if we were comparing sources of milk for an, in, for an infant, one of the key things, apart from the actual living microbes which are being transferred into the, the infant from the mother, is that the mother's breast milk has enzymes, intact functional enzymes which are now being given to the baby, whereas they do not exist in any formula at all. Um, and I just think, what else are we missing out on that we think we are? Oh, we're being really healthy. Oh, I really question that, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And, and, and notwithstanding that there are some mothers who just simply cannot or choose not to breastfeed their infants. I'm a bit of a proponent of, oh, please, can you just give the first two weeks the colostrum, you know, some yeah. immune factors. Yeah. But I get that, yeah. you know, some women just simply can't breastfeed and they shouldn't be made to f feel guilty about that if they simply can't. Um, so moving on from this, I, I guess we need to really investigate here. What do we do? One of my issues is this. I get that Allergies, serious allergies, are much more of an issue in schools, as you said, now, um, you know, in today's society than previously, even a decade ago. Um, and I totally agree with you now. My wife works in a school and, um, you know, they're seeing in the classes that the teachers are now asking, or, or I should say the school is asking, you know, can this class, can these children please um, not bring things like peanuts. Peanuts are one of the big things and certainly other nuts into the school because there is somebody in the class with a peanut allergy. And, and peanut allergy seems to be the most fulminant of all of the allergies that are experienced. Um, yes. Two things. One, Professor Mimi Tang, her work with immunotherapy, that is I think it was one two hundredth of a peanut desensitizing. Now, obviously that's in a controlled medical environment where if a child was struck by anaphylaxis, they could rescue them. So that's number one. Don't do this at home. Um, number two, though, there was some very interesting work being done on lactobacillus rhamnosus. I do believe it was a Chinese strain, WX, WS, WWWW. So, there was some paper that said LGG, so I'm not sure about this one, which, which strain she used, um, or indeed if that is the same strain. But um, what I'd be interested to know is, does that gain an even better risk reduction, or sorry, I should say rescue from peanut allergy, i.e. these kids are no longer anaphylactic, or is it just one or the other? You know, like, was it as good as immunotherapy? I haven't seen that data yet, so it'd be interesting to look at. But my concern is, if you simply tell everybody to avoid peanuts, what's next? And indeed, is it achievable? Because won't somebody sometimes sneak some peanuts in so you think you're safe and you're really not? 
You know, I, I, I got well, real concerns about asking asking kids to change their dietary habits because of one person's issue, horrible as that is. I'm just wondering whether you whether that that asking other parents to therefore avoid the same food will have an impact on changing behaviour, and therefore is it a useless you know is it a useless request? Well, the Australian guidelines that came out this year indicated that we we got it wrong. You shouldn't be avoiding these foods in the first twelve months of life. In fact, it's really important that the allergenic foods are introduced in the first 12 months of life, including peanut butter, cooked egg, dairy, and wheat products. Really? Um, yes. They wow. changed their stance on this, and they said it should be introduced because to sti- in order to stimulate a healthy immune response, that avoiding it has shown to increase the risk of atopy in children who are susceptible. Yep. So obviously this should be done not before the age of four months, They're, and this is their guideline saying this, and yep. that... Um, breastfeeding should be continued as long as possible for at least six months, introducing a variety of solids, you know, one at a time at, at around six months or more. Yeah. But allergenic foods should be included in that in the first 12 months of life. And that's the Australian guidelines. Um, okay. So that's really interesting. So yeah. here's my only concern. That would be nice if you were going to avoid and all antibiotics and so therefore maintain a normal microbiota. But what do you think the issues are going to be with what happens with, you know, kids with glue ear and things like that? I know that that's even contentious, but I just hope that the the willy-nilly handing out of antibiotics, particularly for things like um, glue ear, um, are avoided because of the, you know, incredible concern now about bacterial resistance. And, and the, you know, the data with use of antibiotics in glue ear is... It's actually equivocal. It might help with pain, but it, does it help resolve an, an, an inner ear? Inf- sorry, a middle ear infection. I don't think it, it actually sways the recovery from it. So yeah, it'd, 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 it'd just be a really interesting thing to monitor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Antibiotics in the first year of life can have devastating impact on the gut microbiome, which can have long-term health implications. One thing I wanted to mention mm. in relation to food allergies is Many of the childhood vaccines contain chick egg embryo. Um, And, you know, this can be part of the reason why they're reacting because they're getting minute amounts of these potential allergens if they're genetically susceptible, which could be increasing that um, development of food allergies later on in life. So, you know, these are, it's coming from different sources as well. And I think we need to look at the adjuvants that are used in vaccines. Um, because they could also be potential triggers. I mean, I don't want to go into a vaccine issue here, but, you know, aluminium, of course, there are some metals in there that are used particularly to trigger the innate immune response. So um, I think a big part of this is looking at what children are actually receiving in the first 12 months of life and where the triggers could actually be. But in the house, there are many things in the house that can trigger allergies that you can significantly reduce people's exposure to that we know people are going to react to. One of the most common allergies in the world is to house dust mites. It affects almost yeah. 22% of the world's population as opposed to grass pollens, which is about 17%, and pet dander, about 9%. So most of these allergens that we know trigger asthma and hay fever and um, skin-related issues like eczema, you know, are things that are directly in the home. I remember years ago I used to travel the, from Sydney up to the north, 
northern rivers. And each country town would profess that they had the highest dust mite um, concentration, <laughs> basically. Um, it was really, really quite funny. That, um, when I looked at the National Asthma Campaign, that was years ago, decades ago, um, it was Grafton that had one of the highest Ooh. concentrations. And um, the proposed theory was because it became, got really cold in winter so people would heat their houses. Wasn't such an issue the further north you got because they had a warmer climate. So I'm worried about things like Melbourne. You know, like I don't know of any data down there. I'm not sure now. But it's a real, well, is, is it still a real issue? Like as in a huge issue? Absolutely. Yep. And, it's, and you know, I'm shocked looking at all the allergens in the home going, why didn't I learn this as a naturopath? Like we know, for example, house dust mites, the humidity is critical to the you know, house dust mites proliferating because, you know, they are dependent because they can't drink. They don't have eyes and they can't drink. So they are relying on absorbing moisture from the air. So when that humidity exceeds 60% relative humidity and the warmth is there, they're just going to be prolific. Ah. Um, so that, that's the key. It's the humidity that's the issue and the warmth because that's what they need. Now, of course, wherever you are, you provide warmth, you provide moisture, and that's why the bedding is really the area where you're going to have the highest levels um, compared to any other part or furnishing within the home. So these things, these dust mites, are, you know, you can have up to 500 house dust mites per gram of dust in your home. It could be even more in, in higher areas. Australia does have one of the highest rates of house dust mites in the world because of our microclimate and they peak around midsummer. But we know it's the fecal pellets or the poo that they create, the protein DRP1 in the house dust mite that are causing the uh, allergic reactions in susceptible people. So, you know, many of them produce 40 trillion fecal pellets in your mattress every three months, which is why it's so important, good housekeeping, like airing your mattress in full sun, you know, at least every season, more if you've got a house dust mite allergy is really important, keeping the humidity below 60%. So in areas in the central coast where it's prolific, um, whole house dehumidifiers can be very good at not just reducing mould because, of course, mould proliferates when you hit 70% or more, but also the house dust mite. So that's, that's the interesting thing. <laughs> that's really dust interesting. Dust mite, mould are really synonymous. And, of course, then you get termites and other pests involved as well and bacteria and fungi proliferate. So in this environment, you've got multiple allergens, which is why we find between 45 and 55% relative humidity, most allergens would not exist. Most people would not have an allergic response if they were within an environment between 45 and 55% humidity, which is why a whole house dehumidifier for people with allergens living in uh, climates, you know, central coast, northern um, Queensland, for example, would probably have more benefit doing that than most medications or herbs we could prescribe. Do you know of any data that might be looking at humidity versus arid areas of um, allergy incidents or prevalence? What would come to mind that I've come across? I'm, hmm. I would suspect that they would might be available. That's a good question. I, th I think you'd have to probably, you know, garner it from each area and then put it together on a map. I didn't know that about the humidity issue. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. So, so you would expect people in the northern rivers to be much higher prevalence of atopy from dust mite than people, say, from Melbourne. 
where it's a lower. Oh, well, does it get humid? It doesn't really get humid down there. Well, let's say inland. Yeah, it, yeah. It, and look, the humidity can be generated from man-made sources and you closing know, poor air, ventilation. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Winter time, you're you're airing your clothes inside. Huge amounts of moisture, liters of moisture. Five liters of moisture comes out from you know just one clothes horse full of wet clothes uh, in a day. So. You know, you want good ventilation. So, of course, you can get artificial forms of humidity generated from man-made activities or poor ventilation or buildings that are not waterproofed or have flood or water damage of some sort. So, yes, they they can be an issue. But definitely, as you go up north, as the humidity increases, especially beyond 60%, you're going to have a proliferation of these house dust mites, which is why it's critical to address it. So symptoms of house dust mite allergies are itchy, watery eyes, sneezing, itching, runny, blocked nose, dry, persistent cough, wheezing, and dermatitis. The symptoms are worse at night and upon waking and improve when the the sufferers are away from the source. So these are generally... Uh, long-term allergies as, a, as opposed to pollen allergies, which are generally seasonal. So with regards to things like mattress covers, pillow covers, I know you can get them quite readily now. They're a lot cheaper than what they used to be back in my day. Are they worthwhile or do you find that they just, the, the, the dust mites just live now on the outside of that cover? <laughs> you know, they repopulate the outside. Yeah, so look, overall, I mean, there is some contention. How effective are these dust mite covers? It's all got to do with the micron size and the thread of the cover. So, yes, most people I know who have house dust mite allergies do improve, but the reality is the newer the mattress is, the less house dust mites that are in it, and that's the reality of it. So how old the mattress is and how well it is maintained and aired in the sun is critical to the amount of dust mites you're likely to be exposed to. And that also includes pillows and mattresses and doona covers and encasements, which should be made from natural fibres. Um, silk being the best because of its thread size. Silk, it's cool huh? for people with allergies. So silk is the best material for pillows and for sheets for anyone with allergies, especially ah. um, asthma and eczema. Yeah. I guess from a, a pragmatic level, the particularly things like um, mattress covers would be worthwhile because, it, like, you know, let's say somebody who's not um, necessarily athletic in their prowess, you know, it's, it's quite hard to get a queen-size bed um, mattress outside. You know, you can wrangle it, I guess. But um, for a lot of people, maybe a dust mite cover might be a pragmatic way to at least reduce the, the count, the exposure to the dust mites, because you can easily take that off and wash that and take that outside. Um, what about things like vacuum cleaners, though? Vacuum cleaners are important. Before I move on, the mattress, if you're in a multi-storey building or you can't shift the mattress, what I suggest you do is simply get it off the bed and lean it towards the window where the most amount of sun is coming in <sighs> so it gets sun exposure. Gotcha. And that in itself will help to air it. A big part of it is making sure you have slats under the bed that it's not solid under your mattress because mm-hmm. your mattress must breathe from underneath and there's no clutter under the bed as well is important. That mattress needs to breathe. I've had many clients with severe asthma and eczema that eventually came down to an old hand-me-down mattress that had been sitting in their garage for years, contaminated with mold, contaminated with high oh. levels of house dust mite, and that was it. And this and these kids were on antibiotics, you know, six or eight courses a year for wow. eight years. And it came down to their mattress. Yeah. I've got to say, you know, due to our atopic potential in our in our household, um, we just eventually, we made the decision, we, all carpet is gone. 
we don't have carpet yeah. at all. We tiled. Then there's no doubt about it. Moving carpet significantly reduces the amount of house dust mites in the home. Yeah. Vacuum cleaners, you mentioned, mm. must be fitted with a HEPA filter. And it's the most expensive thing I recommend in my whole book. But for people with allergies, a good vacuum cleaner fitted with a HEPA filter, which will filter all of the allergens because it filters down to 0.3 microns, is absolutely critical. Because if you use a normal vacuum cleaner that's not fitted with a HEPA filter, you will make most of those allergens in the, in the floor become Nebulous. airborne where yeah. they're going to expose people to in their breathing zone. So yeah. vacuum cleaning is absolutely critical. Now, here's one of my practical things. that I, It's one of my bugbears about vacuum cleaner design. What about emptying the vacuum cleaner? <laughs> You've got to yeah, sometimes. Is, do you wear a mask then? Do you, do you um, advocate the use of masks? Well, if you've got the allergy, you shouldn't be the one emptying the vacuum cleaner. So it should be done outside. And this is why I only recommend vacuum cleaners that are fitted with a, a, re- a replaceable bag. Yeah. Do not use vacuum cleaners that have an open barrel where you have to shake it out and the HEPA filter gets contaminated and you can't really clean it. So I always suggest Very good. three things to a vacuum cleaner, HEPA filter, a motorized head if you've got rugs or carpet, and, of course, replace, um, reuse, not reusable, um, disposable bags. Yeah. Absolutely critical. That's really interesting. That's really good advice. Thank you for that. So what other yeah. things? What about things like, um, you know, well, dietary, dietary modification? Can we do anything to reasonably um, look at um, controlling allergies? Well, this is only my hypothesis, but, you know, chlorinating the water might be great to prevent the waterborne epidemics, but what impact does it have on the gut microbiome? So to me, I think a water filter is really important, even if it's just a cheap carbon filter, and I'm not talking about the granular stuff you get from the Kmart and the jug filters because they're next to useless. You want a solid block carbon filter, the smaller the micron size, the better, to get rid of the chlorine and pesticides because chlorine and pesticides are really strong antibacterials. So to me, that would be the first thing you would look at in your diet to um, give your gut microbiome an opportunity to be as healthy as it can be. And what about um, Dr. Mayer should treat Klein's advice, get dirty? (laughs) Yes, get the kids out in the dirt. Absolutely. So important. This is why these farm children have much lower rates of asthma and allergies because they're exposed to a greater diversity but the research is showing that it has to happen in the first year of life. That's when it seems to be the critical window of development because after that, once they develop an allergy to pollens or pets, which, by the way, can't happen before the age of one because they have to be exposed to these aeroallergens and then upon subsequent exposure, that's when they're likely to develop these allergies. So food allergies tend to pre-seed um, the aeroallergens like house dust mite allergies, pet dander allergies, pollen allergies, etc. So that's an important, interesting progression, what we call the atopic march. So can you reiterate that for me, please, Nicole? That's a really important clinical point. Yeah, so aeroallergens are things that you breathe in, pollens, pet dander, um, house dust mite, etc. That generally occurs from the second or third year of life onwards. Um, and a lot of the time that is preceded by food allergies in children. Not always, but generally children who have food allergies are likely to more likely develop 
aeroallergen allergy later on in life. And ironically, people with allergies are 15 times more susceptible to developing chemical sensitivities as well. So this is something we need to look at. This is a trigger and for electromagnetic field sensitivities and chemical sensitivities because the immune system is overreacting yeah. um, to uh, toxins in the environment. So other things like pet allergens are really important. Ironically, the data is saying that children should be exposed to furry pets in the first 12 months of life to reduce their exposures. But if after that time they are allergic to a cattle dog, then they shouldn't have a cattle dog. And do you find um, any type of animal is worse, um, a worse culprit, if you like, for allergens? Like, for instance, cats are constantly preening themselves. Dogs are more likely to lick you. Um, you know, is there any difference in the allergenic potential of animal danders, or, you know, cat dander versus dog dander, or is it just luck? No, cat dander is more, is more than double the rate of allergies compared to wow. dogs. Um, they produce a protein called FALD1 in their sweat glands, which they spread when they lick themselves. The problem with cat fur is that you could find it in almost every school because if someone owns a cat, that goes to that institution or building, it will literally contaminate the entire building right. <laughs> with the uh, proteins. Where so we know cat hair is in is almost in most homes that have ever been tested. It's found there because wow. you only need to have someone who owns a cat has a bit of fur on their clothes, and then they transfer that that protein into the environments that they walk into. So non-pet owners, often you'll find cat dander in their homes, classrooms, clothing of workers who don't have pets, all of those things. It's incredibly ubiquitous. Okay. Which makes it difficult if you're sensitive to cat allergies. Absolutely. Because, wow. God. Everywhere. Okay. So yep. treatment, other sorts of treatments, like if you're thinking about active intervention, um, are there any dietary modifications that you can look at? Are there any nutrients or herbs that you use that are worthwhile? Well, before I go on to that, I just want to say there's no such thing as an allergy-free dog or cat. No. no, no so no. we know that, you know, labradoodles, all that sort of stuff with the shorter hair, it's not the yeah. hair, it's the dander yeah, yeah. Um, and the protein on their skin and, and hair that's causing the issue. In terms of what they can do, you know what, the most important thing I learned over years of working as a natural therapist was treat the patient, look at their symptoms, ask lots of questions to see where the triggering factors are and support their immune response, support their detoxification pathways, reduce their stress and build resilience. You know, it really, for diet, it comes back to basics again. Clean water, good food that's preferably low in chemicals, that's not packaged, that's made from scratch from the ground up, um, that's high, that's um, sourced from local, preferably organic, pesticide-free, or at least, you know, the, for apples and things that have high pesticide content, is really important. And lots of fibre, providing they don't have any, um, you know, irritable bowel, etc., yeah. in order to provide the short-chain fatty acids that the bacteria need to do their job. So look at each patient individually, ask lots of questions to see how the environment could be contributing, and, you know, go back to basics. Because I think the thing that so, really, if I look back at my training, it was like so complicated in terms of pathology, in terms of diagnosis, everything was focused on diagnosis. And in the end, I just dropped everything. I said, you know what, I'm going to go back to basics. I'm yep. going to listen to the patient. I'm going to, and I've noticed, wow, visible mold. Every time someone came with chronic fatigue, it was either pesticide exposures that 
stimulated the event or visible mould. And I'll go back to clean air, clean water, regular exercise, change a job if you're not passionate about it, um, here's some strategies to deal with stress, and lo and behold, it would be just a better society. I'm so thankful you mentioned these basic sort of foundational treatments, if you like, rather than going on supplements that are, you know, let's let's admit that if you don't take the load off, take the allergenic load off that human who is experiencing this this condition, you are merely symptom relieving just like an antihistamine would. You're not doing anything to actually change their response. So you've got to do this foundational stuff and then potentially add some certain, you know, judicial choices in. Um, after all has been said and done, I'm so glad you in, included in their um, detox as well. Um, um, I remember a, um, a a lady would come in, she'd treat her family and she saw an integrative doctor. This is, gosh, two decades ago. She used to see an integrative doctor once a year, the same integrative doctor, and they would do their spring cleanse and the whole family was atopic and she would come in and do this comprehensive proper detox, not a 15-day cleanse. Um, she would do a comprehensive, well-marked, well, well um, let's say objectified, well-measured um, detox and um, the whole family would do it and they'd do it once and they'd only have to do it once or twice a year. And, she, and she'd, the whole family would then remain basically allergenic free until you could see she'd see um, symptoms creeping back in her sons. So they'd do another detox twice a year, max. Yeah. And isn't it interesting? So many religions have fasting as part of their protocol. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what else? What about things like for, for those of us who don't farm, um, what can we do to increase microbial diversity? Or is it just once, once that first year is done, your, your microbial array is set? Well, that's a good question that I don't think anyone can answer. But we certainly know, you know, to me, when I look at the Human Microbiome Project and I look at the Sloan Foundation and what they're doing, putting millions into the house microbiome, I go, where do we end and our homes begin in the environment? There's, it's such a grey area now between who we are, if we're 90% bacteria and, you know, our food has this interplay exchanging bacteria with us and the environment in which we live. I mean, it's such a grey area now, isn't it? I think we need to, the first thing we need to do is go, preservatives, antibiotics, what a disaster that's been for human health. Yeah. <laughs> because anything that is focused on killing the bacteria is killing life. So this is why we need to, simple things, like I said, get rid of the chlorinated water, reduce your pesticide load, start putting, start, Stop putting crap on your skin loaded with preservatives that is killing off the microbiome on the skin, which, by the way, is showing like Micrococcus, Pseudomonas and Staphylococcus can transmute and change chemicals that land on the skin. So now we're starting to realize these microbiomes can actually huh? probably be more effective than the liver at detoxifying chemicals. Right. That's really interesting. So, yeah. So anything that says preservative is designed to kill bacteria, it's designed to kill life. Um, and so chlorine, again, heavy metals, many of the heavy metals. This is why I find people who have high heavy metals, more chemical sensitivities, more chronic fatigue, more allergy risk. Why? Heavy metals are generally antibacterials. Okay, okay. so I have to ask, though, are we speaking about causation here or correlation? 
Well, as a researcher, I'd always say correlation because I'm not allowed to say causation. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, it drives me up the wall every time I read a study, which is all the time, that you have to say, oh, but this, when more research is needed, blah, blah, blah. You know what? Let's focus on the precautionary principle and go, there's enough evidence to say these issues are likely to play a role. So let's use common sense. Mm-hmm. So, so what about reduction um, of heavy metals? do you find a reduction in allergic um, symptoms? I have not seen research on this. This is my own hypothesis. I'm just observing, looking at hair mineral analysis in these patients with these chronic multimorbid conditions like chronic fatigue, electrical sensitivity, mold illness. All of these patients have similar phenotypes, similar signs and symptoms, similar levels of heavy metals, gut microbiome issues. I mean, really, the focus... To me, if I was to rewrite naturopathy, I'd move away from diagnosis and I'd be focusing more on the causes of the illness and going back to basics and Mm. looking at its impact. In the end, the research is saying the gut microbiome, the house microbiome, bacteria, which is what we are, how does that interact with food? How Mm. does that interact with chemicals? How does that interact with EMS? That's what we really need to be asking. Now I've I've got to ask I've got to ask a question on obviously one of your major loves which is mold. You've mentioned it before. Do you find treating mold in a house situation will affect uh, the aller- not just the allergenic or the potential load, but the symptomatology of a family or an individual within that house? Given that even with the same load, different individuals within the house can react differently. Correct. I think mold is one of the greatest. Um, cause of allergies that we know of. And the reason is is because we know one in three homes have been water damaged in Australia mm, and mm. one in four people can't create antibodies to mould. So I think asthma, hay fever and eczema can all be triggered by mould mm. and it's something that's ignored by most practitioners and it's the hidden, um, what's the word for it? You know, it's Pandora's box. Yeah. But do you find effect? Do you find... When, when it can be effectively reduced, when particles can be effectively reduced and you see a disappearance, dare I say that word disappearance, of the mould um, or an eradication of the, the load, do you find that symptoms improve in patients with atopies and allergies? I just think... Absolutely. Yeah, wow. Huge. And often it's just a matter of uh, when I go on holidays, my symptoms disappear. That's right. when we start going, okay, you've tried everything. Because most people right. who come to see us as a building biologist have seen lots of practitioners. Um, they've noticed that it got worse when they had the flood or they moved into that home and they know significant improvements away from the site. So they're going, something's in my house that's making me sick. And when it comes to asthma and allergies, the first thing a building biologist will do is um, look at mould and house dust might. And it'll all come back to moisture. What's the microclimate? Does it hit 7% relative humidity in this area? What's the history of um, flood-related issues or moisture or water damage? You know, what are the gutters, the drainage, all of those sort of things. And, you know, many times people, if they did the research before they moved into the home, especially with allergies, they could save them a fortune in, in drugs and misery simply by asking, you know, the neighbors about the history of the home. I'll give you a good example. I had a client who... Um, had severe, her and her, her daughter had severe um, eczema, hay fever and asthma after they moved into this beautiful home in uh, Melbourne. 
And uh, it came down to, I went there twice, did all the testing, etc. And in the end, it came down to the fact that the previous occupant had 15 cats that had lived in the house and all that water damage was actually urine, <laughs> cat urine, oh. which they were allergic to. You oh, know, I spent 1.2 on this house and I said to her, <sighs> I can't. I can't, it's not mould. I need you to talk to the neighbours and find out the history of this building because something's in it that's triggering it. I cannot find it. And she rang me, rang me back and she said, oh, my God, the previous owner had 15 cats that lived in the house and urinated everywhere and oh, we're allergic yuck. to cats. You go through a tonne of eucalyptus oil each year. <laughs> oh, and I think this is an interesting one. If you've got allergies, the tips I'd give you as a building biologist before you rent or build is to ask about the previous occupants, yeah. ask about previous water damage. Once you move into the house, if you can get rid of the carpets, very important because the carpet are the archaeological dig sites. They're, they have all the DNA of all of the previous occupants, anyone who's visited the house, the pets, the pests like cockroaches and rodents is all sitting in the carpet. They so get rid of it and more importantly, with the ducted, especially in Melbourne, we use ducted uh, floor heating, yep, yep. get rid of the flexible dust because as soon as you turn the heating on, all that dust and the DNA from all the previous occupants is just going to be spread through the house. So right. get rid of it and replace the ducts. That will be worth doing that financially than spending you know, the rest of your life in that home miserable and you know, having to take um, medication to deal with your allergies. Nicole, I've got to say, I know that it's... Um these new research papers that are coming out almost daily that are preventing you from finishing your book, but you need to get that last edition out, the most recent edition out, Healthy Home, Healthy Family, because people are going to get such benefit in reading, not just reading about it, but actually instituting these practical tips that you've developed so that they can reduce their allergen load, so that they can reduce their symptomatology, not just in allergens, in allergy, but in, in many other conditions as well. So thank you for joining us on FX Medicine today. Thanks so much, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information.